Section 20, Chapter 13, The Life and Adventures of Kit Carson. This is a LibriVox recording. All LibriVox recordings are in the public domain. For more information or to volunteer, please visit LibriVox.org. Recording by Gary Ullman. The Life and Adventures of Kit Carson by DeWitt C. Peters. Section 20, Chapter 13, Part 1. Kit Carson at his home, the Apache Indians become hostile, an expedition sent against them, it is not successful, another is organized with which Kit Carson goes as guide, two Indian chiefs captured, other incidents of the trip, Colonel Ball attempts to force the Indians to give up Mexican captives, 2,000 savages on the Arkansas River, the visit to them, Kit Carson emigrates and builds a ranch at Rayado. Descriptions of the valley. The massacre of a Santa Fe merchant. His wife is made prisoner. The expedition sent to rescue her. The Indians overtaken. Bad counsel and management. The commanding officer wounded. Mrs. White's body found. Severe snowstorm on the plains. One man frozen to death. Kit Carson returns to Rayado, the occupation of a farmer resumed, the Apaches steal from the settlers nearly all their animals, Kit Carson with thirteen others in pursuit, the surprise, a running fight, the animals recovered, a gallant sergeant and his fate, Kit Carson and Goodell go on a trading expedition to meet California emigrants at Fort Laramie, humorous adventures, the dangers that beset the road to New Mexico. Hairbreadth escape. Arrival at Taos. You don't know me as a polite person. Being comfortably housed in his own pleasant home at Taos, Kit Carson made up his mind to treat himself a more lengthy stay than he had for some time enjoyed. While he was quietly enjoying the pleasance of home, active operations were transpiring about him for the neighboring indians had dug up the tomahawk and buried the calumet and were holding in defiance the united states forces which had been stationed in new mexico to protect its inhabitants colonel bell was at that time commanding officer of the district and had established his headquarters at taos the colonel soon after assuming the command being a resolute man saw that there was but one way to make a deal with these indians and that was to bring them to a strict account and make them amenable for their many crimes this tribe of apaches had given the government of the united states almost as much trouble as have the seminoles in florida and i hesitate not in saying that before they are exterminated which is the only sure plan of making peace with them they will have surpassed their red brethren of the swamps of the south in the number and enormity of their crimes before new mexico came under the jurisdiction of the united states the apaches for many years had committed all kinds of heinous offenses against the mexicans and for a period of ten years after that event these same savages were continually on the warpath notwithstanding military expeditions one after another were organized and sent out against them their mountain retreats 
are almost inaccessible to white men, while the Indians apparently play about in them like rabbits. The amount of physical endurance and the length of the journey these red men can make appear very astonishing to one not accustomed to them. The Apaches, as an Indian race, are not wanting in bravery, the best evidence of which statement is that nearly all their warriors die in battle. Their country is the healthiest in America. Beside waging war against the whites and Mexicans, they have their differences to settle with their neighboring tribes, with whom they are punctilious in vindicating their national honor. Colonel Bell commenced his operations against these Indians by dispatching a junior officer backed by a strong force with orders to pursue, overtake, and chastise them. This expedition started, but on coming to the mountains, the guides reported that there was too much snow on them for the command to pass through in safety, so the undertaking was given up, and the men were marched back to Taos. The most famous war chiefs of the Apaches during these troubles was called by the Mexicans Chico Valesquez, and his name for many years was a terror to the surrounding country. His savage brutality knew no bounds, and he was truly in his element only when he was tearing the bloody scalp half lifeless victim he was the sworn enemy of the americans and mexicans and his hunting knife was rarely clean of human blood until his cruel life by the wise decrees of an all-seeing providence was suddenly cut short he fought against his disease smallpox with the rashness that had been his ruling spirit through life and thus ingloriously terminated his days the pride of this man was to strut through the Mexican towns and gloat over his many crimes. To the gazing crowd he would point out the trophies of his murders, which he never failed to have about him. To his fringed leggings were attached the phalanges, or finger bones, of those victims whom he had killed with his own hands. On the one side, he proclaimed to his auditors, were the fingers of the Mexicans, while on the other were the same tokens from the americans and it gave him great delight ironically to dwell upon the latter name with whip in hand he struck out right and left when anything displeased him he met one day more than his match in the person of the famous mexican hunter armador sanchez of whom we have previously spoken the circumstances of this rencounter were as follows the bold Indian, with but few followers, was on a visit of pleasure to the Mexican town of Culebo. He agreed to a temporary peace to suit his convenience and ends, and taking advantage of it, he made his appearance in the settlements to lord it over the peaceable inhabitants. After indulging in a little fire water, his wicked propensities could be controlled no longer and broke forth in minor cruelties. At last he found himself in the house belonging to Sanchez, who was quietly conversing with his aged father, for whom he had great veneration, and also with his son. The Indian preemptorily demanded that some whiskey should be given him. He was informed by Sanchez that he did not keep the article. A second demand was now made, with the threat that if it was not forthcoming immediately, he would whip the person who refused him. This had the effect of bringing Sanchez to his feet, when the, when the following colloquy in Spanish between him and the Indian transpired. Chico Velasquez, you have long been accustomed to treat 
our people almost as you please. You have robbed and murdered us at your will, notwithstanding we have given you no cause thus to act. Had you asked for bread, I would have given it to you, for the door of my house is always open to the friendly red man. But as for whiskey, you can have none from my hands. Raise that whip but once to strike me, and I will dash your brains out with this mass of lead. Suiting his actions to his words, Sanchez drew forth from the pocket of his hunting shirt a slingshot that weighed nearly four ounces, which he always carried to dispatch his game with when it was in the last agonies of death. With uplifted hand, the Indian hesitated, for he knew the character of the man who stood before him, as they had hunted together during many moons gone by, on the same mountain and on the same trail. At last, using his own savage dialect, in order that his words could not be understood by others about him, the savage answered the Mexican hunter by saying that by chance they might some day meet again, a threat which fell harmless at the feet of Sanchez. As he took his departure, the chief added in Spanish, I will tell these things to my father, Kit Carson, as if further attempting to intimidate the hunter. But Sanchez knew that his own and Carson's opinions were the same in regard to this man. Therefore, he smiled at the rascal's knavery. Chico Velasquez was followed in his chieftainship by Blanco, who did his utmost to walk in the footsteps of his illustrious predecessor, but he was not so cunning and was less successful in his encounters with the Americans and Mexicans, and therefore had not that influence with his tribe which the former possessed. Still, he performed his quantum of mischief and yet lives to play his part in the great drama of Indian life. An Apache Indian is rather small in stature, but everything about him denotes symmetry and strength. His limbs are almost straight and their muscles are as hard as iron. The elasticity of his movements, when in the least excited, show a high degree of physical training. His coal-black eye exhibits an amount of treachery rarely seen elsewhere, proving the truth of the Chinese adage that the tongue may deceive, but the eye can never play the rogue. But to return to the narrative, the commanding officer of the party sent out against these Indians, on arriving again at Taos, reported to Colonel Beale that the reason he had returned was because, at the present time, it was impracticable to cross the mountains. That brave and experienced officer replied that there was no such word as impracticable in the soldier's vocabulary and that nothing ought to be impossible for the first regiment of the United States Dragoons to accomplish. Suiting his actions to his words, Colonel Bell reorganized the command, took charge of it himself, and employed Kit Carson as his guide. When everything was in proper trim, this expedition set out, and, after surmounting many obstacles and privations, finally accomplished the feat of crossing the snow-clad mountains, and, after a long and fruitless search for the Indians, the men were obliged to turn about because their stock of provisions was running low, as the command emerged through the Sangre de Cristo Pass, on this return route, they came suddenly into view of a village of Apaches. 
As soon as the Indians were discovered, the charge was sounded, but the animals of the dragoons were too much jaded to obey the summons with the celerity wished for by their riders. The result was that, beside a considerable amount of plunder, only two persons were taken, but they fortunately proved to be no less than the two important chiefs. In order to impress these Indians with the fairness and liberality with which his government wished to show to the red men, after a long talk in which the colonel exacted promises of good behavior, he let the prisoners go. They departed to forget as quickly as possible all their vows and promises, for seemingly they will act in no other way than as their own savage instinct teaches. After this affair, Colonel Bell made a direct march for Taos, where he remained for some time attending to the ordinary duties of his garrison. In the treaty between the United States and New Mexico, entered into at the close of the Mexican War, a clause was inserted binding the former to turn over to the latter all the Mexican captives, then held by the Indians, who inhabited territory belonging to the first-named government. The carrying out of this provision of the treaty involved the United States government in a large and constant bill of expense. This was undoubtedly unavoidable, for even had the clause not been inserted in the treaty, the maintenance of about the same frontier military forces would have been necessary. It would have proved a difficult matter to carry out this treaty to the letter. If it had been so carried out to the letter, the Comanches would have been great sufferers, for at least one-third of the blood that now runs in their veins is Mexican. During the last half century, and perhaps longer, they have been accustomed to make annual visits into the Mexican settlements of old Mexico. The objects of these hostile incursions has ever been to load themselves with plunder. They steal all the horses that fall in their way, also take for captives as many young children as they can lay hands on. The latter are brought up in true Indian style, and having cast off all remembrance of their former habits and friends, they gradually become the wild men of the plains. The female captives on arriving at the suitable age are married to the young warriors of the tribe, and thus the true Indian stock becoming amalgamated with the Mexico-Spanish blood is fast becoming degenerated. The reason, therefore, why the fulfillment of this treaty would have mitigated strongly against the Comanche Indians especially is clearly apparent. In the following February, Colonel Bell learned that on the Arkansas River there was congregated a large body of Indians who had quite a number of Mexicans in bondage. He felt it to be his duty to visit these savages and endeavor to have them deliver up all such captives, using peaceable means to accomplish this result in the first instance, and should they fail, he made up his mind to resort to more forcible and potent arguments. With this determination, and with two companies of dragoons to back him and Kit Carson as his guide, he set out on his mission. In due time, he reached the Arkansas, and there found congregated four tribes of Indians who numbered in the vicinity of 2,000 souls. Their object in thus coming together was to have a grand council lay out plans for the future and also to meet their agent. This agent, who was an experienced mountaineer, informed the colonel that, considering the present state of ill feelings existing among these Indians towards the whites, 
it would be useless to make the demand for the prisoners and as to using force it would almost certainly prove a failure when such a large number of well-armed warriors were arrayed against him it required a great deal of persuasion to bring the colonel around to this mode of thinking but at last he yielded to the advice of his friends and concluded to make no demonstration against the indians at the present time concluding as his anger cooled that it was the wisest policy to wait a more favorable opportunity when a treaty could be made with them in which there could be an article inserted that would stipulate for the restoration of the captives in parting with these red men without accomplishing the main object for which they came both officers and men felt that their labors had not been entirely thrown away their presence must have left lasting impressions on the mind of the savages in showing them that they no longer had poorly clad and poorly armed mexican soldiers to deal with on arriving again in taos kit carson returned to his home to ruminate over what was best for him to take up as a business for the future he revolved in his thoughts his past career and in the end finished the mental study by resolving to give up his roaming life as he rightly considered that now was the time if ever that he should be making a substantial home for himself and his family before old age crept upon and disabled him from the undertaking about the time that he was in this frame of mind his old mountaineer friend maxwell was about going to a pretty little valley called by the mexicans rayado maxwell proposed to kit carson to join him in the enterprise of building a ranche on the site which he had selected this offer the latter gladly accepted Rayado would have long before been settled by the mexicans had they not been deterred by its exposure and consequent inviting position for indian depredation the valley is about fifty miles east from taos and for its scenery cannot be surpassed by anything of the kind in america standing at the head of it on a blunt bluff you look down and out on the prairies and nothing can be more enchanting than the view that is thus presented on each side there are lofty hills which when green with grass and foliage add a magic beauty to the scene through the valley as if it had been intended for its dividing line runs a broad mountain stream the banks of which are now metamorphed into beautiful fields we stop here to undeceive the reading public concerning an idea which has gained currency by the extraordinary imaginative writing of novelists these trashy fictions represent the western plains or prairies as flowerbeds in this a great mistake has become prevalent a traveller often pursues his way over them for many days without seeing anything to interrupt the continuity of green grass except it be the beautiful road over which he is journeying near the slopes of the mountains and on the river banks the remark will apply there fields of wild flower are often found growing in great luxuriance the settlement was soon after commenced by kit carson and maxwell and is now completed is really a beautiful spot it is located about midway down the valley among its several houses there are two which are more conspicuous than the rest in the finest of these two the owner of which has taken great pains and spent 
much valuable time with its construction lives maxwell whose honest pride is the being master of a model farm in the residence next most to be admired is Rayado, kit carson's sometimes sojourns the mansion which belongs to maxwell would be an ornament to any country at one time it was used as a garrison for american troops and on it the soldiers made many improvements it is built one story high in the shape of a hollow square and has the size of an ordinary block in a city around the whole runs a fine veranda with its lofty ceilings large and airy rooms and its fine yard in the centre of the square which is well stored with its fowls pigeons and other pet animals with appropriate kennels with antlers of noble buck and elk hams and venison buffalo meat wild turkeys etc nearby a fine vegetable garden altogether it presents a picture of sumptuous living rarely seen within the pale of civilization maxwell counts his steeds and cattle by the hundreds while his flocks of sheep are enumerated by thousands nearby stands kit carson's ranch which though more modest yet when the hunter occupies it in dead game and comfort it fully rivals its compere around these two hunters live a handful of mexican friends who are either engaged in agricultural pursuits for themselves or else in the employ of the lords of the matter carson and max in this his residence at rayado kit carson is only kept from spending his whole time by business for which his tastes are more suited soon after the commencement of the settlement and while he was engaged in his vocation as a farmer news reached him that the apaches had been committing a most wicked murder the details of which are horrible in the extreme a merchant by the name of white who was engaged in business at santa fe had been into the united states for the purpose of purchasing goods with his train of wagons and a small escort of men traveled his private carriage in which there were as passengers as accomplished but unfortunate lady and her only child on arriving at a point where he anticipated no further danger mr white started on ahead of his caravan in order that he might search santa fe as soon as possible and thus relieve his family from the privations of camp life he had proceeded but a few miles when he was attacked by some indians who had concealed themselves in the rocks on either side of the road the savages as the carriage neared their hiding place fired with such accuracy of aim that they killed by their first volley all of the men who were with the carriage before they were aware of the danger which surrounded them mrs white and her child were reserved for a worse fate they were carried off into captivity the child proved to be a source of annoyance to the bloodthirsty savages and its angel spirit was released from earth by their cruel ferocity before the eyes of its captive mother the fatal tomahawk was raised and by one dastardly blow its keen edge was made to mingle with its brains the horrid work failed not to bring the bitter woes and anguish of despair to the breast of the unhappy mother 
it was then thrown into red river which was the stream nearest to the scene of the bloody tragedy red river and its great canyon have always been to the apache indians a favorite haunt of refuge either when pursued or after the committal of some terrible crime there are several streams in the west called by this name the one here referred to is the red river of the plains and is the one of the upper tributaries of the arkansas river in olden times it went by the name of the canadian river several sharp conflicts have occurred on this stream between the apache indians and parties of united states troops it has also formed the stage of many an indian tragedy in conflicts between the mountain indians and the indians of the plains quite recently attempts have been made by whites to use its bank for grazing purposes but every enterprise which has been set on foot to establish ranches in its vicinity have been warmly contested by the comanches who have killed seven persons who have dared to essay such attempts the intelligence of this terrible butchery having been carried to new mexico a command was organized in hot haste which had for its object the immediate rescue of mrs white from her bondage worse than death two men went with this party as guides named leroux and fisher watkins leroux is an old and famous trapper and a mountaineer whose reputation and skill as a guide in the far west is second only to kit carson's a few of his warm partisans who are ever very warm in their praise of their friend at one time considered him superior even to kit carson but when the skill of the two men came to be tried in the same cause the palm was yielded to kit carson leroux had guided several parties over new routes with meritorious success his knowledge of indian character is nearly equal to that possessed by kit carson and he is endowed with a wonderful amount of forethought and prudence but in an indian fight or on any great emergency his faculties appear to be less active and his judgment less certain than those exhibited by the great nestor of the rocky mountains well understood maxim that there are more or less narrow-minded persons who are ready and eager to pull down any and every rising man and for this purpose such must choose a champion kit carson's association with colonel freeman had won him so great renown as a mountaineer and guide that an opposition party was formed to detract from his merits and capability leroux owing to his popularity was chosen for the leader of this party and whenever the name of kit carson was mentioned the friends of leroux always saw fit to compare the deeds of the two men together this strife of course could not be lasting and now it is almost forgotten it is just tribute of praise due to both of these brave men to say that they do not sanction by word or deed either party to the controversy they could but appreciate each other and as friends ever felt elated the one at the success of the other and vice versa they mutually considered that every fresh laurel of glory added a measure full of honor and renown to their common brotherhood of mountaineers among whom the good reputation of their cloth 
was as dear as it was among the knights attached to the orders of chivalry. Their ranches are located in the same valley and in the same town, where, having lived together as fast friends in life, in all probability, they will find their last resting places in the same graveyard. Few men can say aught against the character of Watkins Leroux, but in this estimate of his actions, we are only reviving what has already been given to the public. When Leroux and Fisher employed as guides, the expedition for the rescue of Mrs. White set out on its route, and on its journey passed by Rayado. Kit Carson immediately pro-offered his services for the expedition. They were accepted, but much to the surprise of many of the party, instead of being at once placed in the position which his great experience demanded, he was assigned to an inferior position under the command of Leroux. Kit Carson, however, was too good a soldier to exhibit the conduct which the little buzzing talkers so anxiously looked for from their supposed kindling of his jealousy, and quietly took the post assigned him. Eager to lend a helping hand which might even thus be instrumental in saving a valuable life, it is proper, however, that we should add that this slight upon his reputation and experience wounded his feelings, but especially as the life in jeopardy belonged to a woman, he would not, and did not, think of allowing his actions to partake of his feelings. We have reason to believe that this slight, at least on the part of the commanding officer of the expedition, was not intentional. That gentleman was an honorable man and would not have committed an act which he considered would have resulted otherwise them for the best, and in appointing Leroux his chief counsellor, he had selected a good man, but one whom he afterwards learned, to his sorrow, was every way the subordinate of Kit Carson in managing Indian affairs. A few years subsequent to the transpiring of this murder, and the skirmish which succeeded it, we travelled near to the spot where the same officer who had the command of the above expedition. He reverted to the affair with much feeling, and from his actions and remarks, we could plainly see that his sympathies had been perhaps too greatly enlisted in behalf of his unfortunate countrywoman, and that his better judgment had been overcome by giving way to the urgent advice of others. If it had been a battle where either scientific attainments or manly courage could have succeeded, he would doubtless have been himself and, and carried everything through with success. This is no mere assertion, for his long and well-tried military career warrants us in this belief. We have the greatest respect for this gentleman and consider him a very valuable man. But as a biographer, we are called upon to narrate the facts as they come to us. If he has succeeded Everything would have been considered as well done, but he failed, and the cause of his failure is plain. The party being thus constituted, and no delay having been occasioned by any unforeseen accident, the party arrived in good season at the place where the cold-blooded murder had been consummated. Around the spot there was strewn in great confusion boxes, trunks, pieces of harness, and many other things, 
which had belonged to the unfortunate party, and which the villains did not fancy and carry away with them. The path taken by these Indians was soon found, and on it the command traveled in full chase for failed but twelve days without seeing the outline of a savage. Carson described this as being the most difficult trail to follow, he remembers, ever to have undertaken. For the rascally Apaches, on breaking up their camps, would divide into parties of two and three, and then scatter over the vast expanse of the prairies to meet again at some preconcerted place where they knew water would be had. In several of these camps, the pursuers found remnants of dress and other articles that were known to have belonged to Mrs. White. By these signs, they were led to believe that she still lived, although these things would be trifles on ordinary occasions, yet at the present time they were the cause of stimulating the white man to their utmost exertions, and as they grew fresher, the excitement among the party increased. At last, the camp and even the persons of the savages became visible to the foremost of the pursuers, and among the first to get a glimpse of them was Kit Carson. At the time the discovery was made, Kit Carson was considerably in advance of most of the men. Turning to those near him, he shouted to have the command come on as fast as possible, for he saw at once that there was no time to be lost in consultation as to the best mode of assaulting the Indians. They already were in commotion and were making hurried preparations to decamp. Riding on at full speed for some distance, Kit Carson again turned his head and saw, to his dismay, that he was not followed, but instead the command had halted. The cause of this curious order being given at such a precarious moment was, as he afterwards learned, brought about by the advice of the chief guide, who told the commanding officer that the Indians wished to have a parley. On seeing what was transpired behind him, Kit Carson had no alternative but to rein up his horse also, for to ride on alone into the midst of the savages would have been unjustifiable rashness, and might, perhaps, have destroyed the plans his superior officers were concocting. So he stood paralyzed and confounded at the inactivity of his companions. Just about this time, a bullet fired from the Indian camp struck the commanding officer in the breast and bent him forward. Those around him for a little while supposed that he had received a mortal wound. Still, he retained his seat in the saddle, but he could not speak. Thus, again, was precious time lost, as the party during this time was virtually without a leader and did not seem to be inclined to make one. Fortunately for this officer, just before he received the shot, he had taken off his thick buckskin gauntlets and crowded them into his breast pocket. The ball had struck this bundle, and as its force was somewhat expended by the distance it had come, it was unable to more than penetrate the mass and contuse the soft parts of the chest. The accident assisted in preventing this well-known military man from inflicting such a blow on these savages that they would have been long in recovering from it. 
He had undoubtedly seen, soon after he had halted, that Kit Carson was right in recommending a charge, for as quick as he recovered sufficiently from his injury to be able to speak, he commanded the men to make the attack and leave him to himself. Unfortunately, the time had passed to accomplish that desired effect when this order was given, for on arriving among the lodges, the men found only one warrior. He, as a matter of course, was slain. The body of Mrs. White was also found in the camp. Life was extinct, though her soul had but just flown to heaven. There was still warmth in the corpse when the men first discovered it. An arrow had pierced her breast. Evidently, she had been conscious that friends were near and was trying to make her escape when the missile of death produced the fatal wound. Much has been written and said about this sad affair, and much unjust calumny has been heaped upon the head of the leader of the expedition. Therefore, the opinion of Kit Carson in reference to the matter may not be out of place. Hence, we give it word for word. I am certain, says Kit Carson, that if the Indians had been charged immediately on our arrival, Mrs. White would have been saved. At first, the savages were much confused at our approach, and I do not hesitate to say that. She saw us as quick as any one of the Redskins did, for it undoubtedly was the all-absorbing topic of her mind that her rescue would be attempted by her friends and countrymen. On seeing us coming, she had attempted to run towards us when she was shot down. Had she been liberated, she could not have long survived the brutality, hardships, and vicissitudes she had experienced. Words cannot describe the bitter cup that she had been obliged to drink during her captivity. It was the will of Providence that having suffered like a martyr on earth, she should be taken to himself before we arrived to where her remains lay upon coming upon which we shed tears at thus being defeated in what had been our cherished hope even had it cost some of us our own lives by this language it can be readily seen that kit carson regretted the failure of this attempt made to rescue Mrs. White as deeply as anyone, either in the expedition or among her friends, at the home from which she had so recently, in health and happiness, been torn. Yet, I cannot, says Kit Carson, blame the commanding officer or the other guide for the action they took in the affair. They evidently did as they thought best, but I have no doubt that they now can see that if my advice had been taken, the life of Mrs. White might have been spared for at least a short period. This expedition was far from being a failure, for the Indians lost all their provisions, camp equipage, and a few animals. Many of these savages ran away, leaving behind everything they possessed in the world, except the scanty amount of clothing they had on. For six miles they were pursued over the level prairie when another brave was killed, several wounded and three children taken prisoner. The horses belonging to the expedition broke down one by one until at last the chase had to be given over, after which the Indians made short work in getting out of sight. 
Among the trinkets and baggage found in the captured camp, there was a novel which described Kit Carson as a great hero who was able to slay Indians by scores. This book was shown to Kit and was the first of its kind he had ever seen. After glancing at it, he made the remark that perhaps Mrs. Wife, to whom it belonged, knowing he lived not very far off, had prayed to have him make his appearance and insist in freeing her. He wished that it might have been so, but consoled himself by thinking that he had performed his duty while on their route back to Taos. The command was overtaken by a terrible snowstorm, which was accompanied by a high wind. As there were no hills to break its force, it amounted almost to a tornado. The snow was driven with such force into the men's faces that they became nearly blind and were bewildered as to the course they should travel. During its continuance, they wandered about on the prairies. Finally, they were so fortunate that at last they reached a clump of timber in the neighborhood of Las Vegas in New Mexico. But during the tramp, one man had been frozen to death why others had come near to perishing. End of section 20, chapter 13, part 2.